The following is audio from Fellowship Community Church in Centennial, Colorado. If you would like more resources or want to support this ministry, please visit www.fcchurch.org. As we've been journeying along in the book of Mark, we have found that Jesus is the servant on the mission. And the verse that comes to our mind as a theme verse for the Gospel of Mark is that he came not to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This month we're saying the theme is surrounding highs and lows. And all of life is a roller coaster ride, isn't it? We got some highs, we got some lows, and you never know whether a high or a low is coming tomorrow or not, and, and it's just an interesting journey sometimes in life. We're going to give the title, Facing Difficult Problems, from Mark 6, 14 to 29. I find it interesting that psychologists attempt to help us solve problems. And I think that's very commendable. There's a lot we can learn from study of human behavior. And um, when you're facing a problem, uh, found this, stay calm as, as calm as possible, accept responsibility for the problem, evaluate situations before you respond, find a quick solution, identify problematic patterns. Dealing and coping with problems is a well-studied area. And there are many cognitive, emotional, and behavioral steps that can be taken to effectively face your problems head on. That's true. I, I agree with that. But when I'm really facing problems, this is where I go. I go to the Word of God. I examine the patterns of how God dealt with people because He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so in this chapter, we started out on a very low point. Jesus Christ is rejected in his own hometown of Nazareth. That, facing critics and criticism is a difficult thing to do, and it was certainly a low. Unexpected in some ways, but it happened. And then we looked at how he enlisted the 12 and sent them out on mission. It actually is a continuation of his mission, because they're doing just what he was doing, and, and it's just a glorious thing. And, and that sets the context for what we read today from Mark chapter 6. King Herod heard about this. He heard about the mission of the 12. For Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah. And still others claimed, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested. He had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to, because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. And when Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, and he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came 
On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once, the girl hurried into the king with a request. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed. And because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head the man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Ed told me this week, if you weren't preaching through the Gospel of Mark, no way would you attempt to preach this text. He might be right. But let's pray and ask the Spirit to give us guidance. Lord, Lord, we bow before you. We thank you that your word is, is true. It's not only accurate historically, it is spiritually alive, <laughs> living and active like a two-edged sword. So, so we pray that the truth of the word of God will be impressed upon us, planted in us by the Holy Spirit, and that this week we will be different. We will take steps that are godly because we looked at this passage this week and may it have that lasting impact in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. One of the commentators said, this whole passage is a study in deviant psychology. And that might be true when you look at some of the main characters. We uncover three potential problems that we may have to face. A guilty conscience, that's Herod. A vengeful attitude, that's Herodias. A horrific death, that's John the Baptist. So, a guilty conscience. The English word and the Latin word, it comes from a Latin root. Conscience means with knowledge, with science. Con is the, is the, uh, preposition with. The Greek word that appears 30 times in the New Testament means exactly the same, with knowledge. So a conscience is valuable if you fill it with the truth. It, it's a reliable source. It's, the Holy Spirit will use a good conscience to lead you and guide you, but you need to fill it with truth. And this is why the Apostle Paul, in the, in the verses we've been memorizing, said, I thank God whom I serve as my forefathers did with a clear conscience, a clean conscience. He, he said in, in Acts, when he's before the Sanhedrin, my brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. He, he kept and maintained a good and clear, clean conscience. Now, the conscience can be seared. The Bible warns us about this. You, you can deny your sin, 
rationalize it away, explain it away, and your conscience becomes callous. It loses sensitivity. This can happen to any of us. Ultimately, a conscience can become evil. It's not that people lost their conscience, they filled it with lies, and now they could call good evil and evil good. And they feel guilty if they're not doing evil. I mean, this is how, how it can lead you astray. And that's why it's such an important subject for us. And we see it illustrated here in Herod Antipas because he obviously was suffering from a guilty conscience. And one of the evidences of this is he's believing rumors. He's believing lies, you see. He heard about all this teaching. He heard about the 12. That's the context that we came into this passage. And he sees that Jesus' name is spreading. His reputation is growing. He's becoming more popular, more powerful, more about his reputation is growing. And some anonymous voices are saying, listen, Jesus is either John the Baptist or Elijah. And though the scripture says that John didn't do any miracles, if he was raised from the dead, certainly had the power to do miracles. And so it's kind of a logical conclusion that this, this could have happened if, if that was true, but we know it's a rumor and we know it's not. By the way, in the first century, they were looking for Elijah. The last of the prophets was an Italian. His name was Malachi. No, that's not true. His name is Malachi. And in the very last words he says, before the silence of 400 years, okay, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children, the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. They were looking for Elijah. They, they were expecting Elijah to come and then the Messiah to come. So they think he's either John or, or Elijah or, or maybe just a prophet, like the old prophets of old. They, they were the mouthpieces of God. They spoke God, and, and Jesus certainly is a prophet, but he's more than that. And, and that's the sad thing. Their view, though it's popular, isn't completely accurate. Later, when we get to chapter 8, Jesus and his disciples went on to the village around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you're the Messiah. You see, they were learning this. But the popular view was still distorted. And Herod is believing the rumors. Now, what's really the reality? Well, it's clearly outlined here. Herod is showing his guilty conscience. He says, John, whom I beheaded, has now been raised from the dead. I mean, he, he is very afraid of this. His, his guilt is showing. And, and he, Mark gives us the explanation. Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He, he no doubt did this to satisfy his own protection as a leader, but also to satisfy his wife. But I think it was just his view was, I'm just going to put him in prison. He did this because Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married, for John had been saying, he kept saying, John, John repeated this to Herod, 
It's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. That standard is stated twice in the book of Leviticus. Some of us are reading chronologically through the Bible this year and finding we're in Leviticus. And twice it says you're not permitted to marry your brother's wife. Now, I'm going to try to take a moment and untangle the life family tree of Herod. This is like Days of Our Lives, General Hospital, and Young and the Restless all together. I mean, you look, at, you, you look up dysfunction and you'd see this example. Now, here is a chart of Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the Herod that was on the throne when Jesus was born. Okay, And after he died, they split what he ruled into four regions and appointed his sons to uh, rule these regions. Now, they were never called kings, although in the Gospels, Herod is here called a king. He actually was only a tetrarch. He, he wanted to be a king, but he, he, didn't ever, he never got that title from Rome. But you notice there are four men listed there in that row. And Herod Antipas, the one on the left, is the one we're looking at here. Here are his brothers, Archias, Philip, and Aristobulus. Now, if you notice, Herod, it looks like, had seven sons. He killed off three of them. He's so paranoid that they're going to usurp his authority that Herod had him killed. But these four boys survived. And Herod Antipas is the one we're looking at. But you notice, two columns over is Philip. And Herodias was Philip's wife. Herod Antipas was also married. At the time, he makes a trip to Rome, and somehow they agree to divorce their spouses and marry each other. And you see, she had to have been divorced by Roman law. And while the paperwork was done, God didn't look kindly on it. And Herod is being rebuked, and his wife as well, by John the Baptist. Now, didn't that make it very clear? I don't know, but we tried. Herod wanted to see Jesus. Luke tells us this. But this is the line, and let me say that if you look carefully at this chart, on the lower left corner you see Salome. Josephus says, the daughter that danced, that's who it is. And she was the product of Herodias and Philip. That, that was, that, he, and so she was Herod Antipas' niece, Herodias, his wife's, or his new wife's daughter, and probably was a teenager, most likely, okay, by, by what we know. How do you clear a guilty conscience? Does the Bible give us any advice? It's miserable to live with a guilty conscience. Well, King David was guilty. I mean, we're all guilty of some sin here. And, and I am guilty of serious sin. You are guilty of serious sin. David committed adultery with one of his mighty men's wives and then had him killed in battle. He told the general, just put him out on the front lines and withdraw the troops, and Uriah died. So it's just as though he'd taken a knife and just thrown it right through the man's heart. He's guilty of adultery and murder, and he tried to cover it up. After all, he's the king. 
Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. David wrote this psalm when he cleared his conscience. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. If you want to clear your guilty conscience, you've got to get honest. No deceit. Deceit doesn't work. Honesty works. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. <laughs> it's miserable to be suffering from a guilty conscience. It's miserable. It has physical effects as well as emotional and otherwise. Groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. Here's the real truth. God was disciplining him. My strength was zapped as in the heat of summer. Verse 5. Then. Underline it. Mark it. I don't know, like put a big circle around it. Then. I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I acknowledged it. I said, you're right, Lord, I was sinning. Nathan, you remember, was involved in this and said to David, you're the man. And David responded with repentance. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Transgressions are the things we knew we were sinning when we did it. David knew that, but he confessed it. He agreed with God. He said he called it what it is. It's, he didn't rationalize it any longer. He didn't try to cover it up anymore. He asked God to cover it up, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Do you see that, how quickly it happened? You see how glorious that is? That's the way you cleanse a guilty conscience. And there's no other way. There's no other way to do it. That's the only way. Hallelujah. Now, Herod didn't do it, but we found this truth in Psalm 32. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. Wait a minute, David. Are you upright in heart? Yes. Are you still a man after God's own heart? Yes. Did you sin? Yes. But I confessed it, and he cleansed the guilt of my sin. He forgave it. Isn't that glorious? Listen, every one of us in the room have that story. And I pray that we have taken the path that David took and set. <laughs> Luther said of Psalm 32, it sounds like Paul wrote this. It's so much New Testament gospel. And it happened very quickly. So how do you keep a clean conscience? Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Psalm 51 is also written during the same period. And grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Give me a spirit that's going to obey. Give me a willing spirit. That's the way I want to live my life. Not in rebellion, not with guilt, but with a cleansed and clean and good conscience for the glory of God. Amen? We could be done, but we're not. You know, it gets back to 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because if I have to confess it all, I don't even know it all. But if I confess what I know, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, when you trust Jesus, you, you're cleansed. But in your relationship with God, to keep it healthy, you need to keep confessing sin so that you can keep a clean and good conscience. See, that, that's, that's what we see here. So that's the remedy.
And while we didn't find it in Herod, we found it in other scripture. Now we move on to a vengeful attitude. This is also a miserable problem to have. Whew. The clear instruction from scripture in Romans 12 says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. But many people don't do that. They become bitter, they become angry, they are consumed with a desire for revenge. And that is precisely what we find in Herodias. She nursed a grudge against John. It, the King James says quarrel. It has behind it the word anger, the idea of anger. And in another place, the translation gets expanded. It's a terrible burden to be seeking revenge. It is just miserable. And, and that's, that's how, what she is. That's, that's who she is. And Herod, he fears John because he knows, he knows that he's a righteous and holy man and he's trying to protect him. But when he heard him, when he heard him speak, he, he was really intrigued by it all. He was puzzled, but the verb also can mean treasured. They, he treasured what he said. It's actually used of Mary when it says she treasured these things in her heart about Jesus. It's the same verb, which is kind of interesting. He, he treasured what John was saying because he knew he was a holy and righteous man. And he, and he liked to listen to him. He actually enjoyed listening to him, even though sometimes it was puzzling. Surely there's real trouble in this marriage over John and over what he had said. Well, the day comes. And the, the scripture says it clearly. A timely day. There was a day. She is harboring this. She is waiting for the day. And it finally comes. And it's Herod's birthday. And the Romans were big for throwing celebrations. We celebrated my daughter's uh, birthday yesterday. And it was a great celebration in our house. But the Romans, man, they knew how to really do it up big. And um, it was an extravagant party. Josephus, who is the first century Jewish historian, tells us the exact place where this took place in, uh, in, in, in Perea. And it was a spacious and beautiful building and a fortress, actually, that uh, Herod had built. The guest list includes those lords that are high officials, politically wealthy also, and uh, influential. And also, the military people were there. And uh, those who commanded hundreds and thousands of soldiers and all the VIPs of Galilee were there. And in verse 22, we read, when the daughter of Herodias, and Salome is her name, came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. Today, as in that day, we should always be concerned about the exploitation of children. This is R-rated. Maybe X. It was a filthy, lewd dance. That's what it was. This is common in the histories. 
And that's what it was. And it pleased Herod. And it pleased all these guests. I just can't believe that a mother could be so corrupt as to throw her daughter on the stage. Like I said, I think she's likely a teenager, especially the way that it reads that she's so dependent on her mother's attitude throughout this whole experience. So, Herod makes a foolish statement. He says to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, an oath to the gods, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. Now, the truth is, according to Roman law, he couldn't give her an acre of land. He didn't have the right to do that. So this is like a figure of speech. She's just saying this. And I think she understands it that way. She didn't ask for half the kingdom. But she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. Whew. You see that venge vengeful attitude, seeking revenge? This is her day. This is her opportunity. And at once... Again, Mark's favorite word, it all happened very quickly. At once, the girl hurried into the king with a request, I want you to give me right now, right now, the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Mm. I want to ask you, is vengeance sweet? Does it really work? Does it really satisfy? Does it really get rid of the bitterness and the anger? It doesn't. So what does Romans say? Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's the correct response. You remember when we looked at Jesus in Nazareth and how he kept serving those people, even though they had little faith, he still kept healing those he could. He did what he could with his critics. And that was a great lesson for us. And now we see... Sadly, that Herodias is the exact opposite. You know, in many ways, Herodias reminds me of Jezebel and Ahab with Elijah. No, nobody names their little girls, right, Roberto? Jezebel. That is not a name that we choose for the reputation that girl had. But Herodias is like this, too. So sad. So very sad. You know, John was speaking the truth in their lives. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. We should learn that too from this story. Well, finally, we come to the end, and it's a horrific death. All of us are appointed to die. We are. We're mortal. That's why we pray for the rapture so hard, because we don't want to go through death. But we don't know how it'll come. We don't know when it will come. We need to prepare for death. The king is distressed. He's greatly distressed. He is surrounded by sorrow and grief and stress. It is the exact same verb that is used of Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane before he went to the cross. It's the exact same. That's how much Herod didn't want to do this. But he painted himself in the corner, so to speak, and he had to do it. It's disgusting. It's horrible. He's trapped before the VIPs, and he doesn't want to refuse 
her request. And so immediately, again, there's that verb, sent an executioner with the orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. Beheading was done in the Roman Empire. As I researched it, the Encyclopedia Britannica was a help. Beheading is a mode of executing capital punishment by which the head is severed from the body. I told you it's rated R. The ancient Greeks and the Romans regarded it as a most honorable form of death. Before execution, the criminal was tied to a stake and whipped with rods. In earlier times, an axe was used, but later a sword, which was considered a more honorable instrument of death, was used, and it was used for Roman citizens. They would not crucify their citizens, but they would hack their heads off. I had a dear friend. His name is Ed Iwan. He's in heaven today. He was a missionary for years in Africa to Muslims. He bore little fruit in many years of service. And he said, you know, people say Christians die well. John didn't. He lost his head. <laughs> it's true, isn't it? Dr. Wearsby, when I was in seminary, was the pastor at Moody Memorial Church in Chicago, the, the church that D.L. Moody had founded. And one day he's, he's preaching, he gets up to preach, and this guy comes in from the back in, 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 in filthy rags and, and a staff. He's got long hair and beard, and he says, I'm John the Baptist, and I demand to be in the pulpit to speak. And Wearsby said, I knew it wasn't John the Baptist because he came in wearing his head, not carrying it. Well, let's not take away from the seriousness of what happened to John. It's horrific death. Terrible. Terrible. It really was. And his disciples lovingly showed mercy and they came and they took his body and they laid it in a tomb. In 36 AD, the family of Herod Antipas' first wife attacked his region and defeated them soundly. And Josephus says that all the people said that happened because he killed John the Baptist. He beheaded him. The preacher said, I'm not afraid of death. It's the dying part I don't like. And that's true, isn't it? I think all of us would be, like to be like my father-in-law. He went to bed one night and he woke up in heaven. It was that simple. Was that peaceful? But we don't know how we'll die. We, we don't know. But we need to be prepared, don't we? Because we're all mortal. And we get prepared by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. John died in victory. You know, his last breath was on the earth. His next breath was in the presence of Almighty God. And he was received with great joy into heaven for the mission he had accomplished. All of this reminded me of an old hymn because I always am reminded of old hymns, aren't I, huh? You've noticed the pattern. George Young, a 19th century preacher, was a carpenter and a preacher, and he always served in rural areas. He never had much wealth, but he and his wife were very faithful to the gospel. 
And after he had struggled for so long, he finally, as a carpenter, was able to build himself a house. And then some hoodlums came along, and they didn't like his message of gospel preaching. They burned his house down. And it was out of that experience that he relied on Job 35.10, God my maker who gives songs in the night. And George Young wrote a song. And I was thinking of it when I was studying this. Some through the waters, some through the flood, some through the fire, but all through the blood of Christ, see, as believers. All through the blood, some through great sorrow, but God gives a song in the night season and all the day long. In shady green pastures, so rich and so sweet, God leads his dear children along. Where the waters cool flow, bathes the weary one's feet, God leads his dear children along. Sometimes on the mount where the sun shines so bright, God leads his dear children along. Sometimes in the valley, in darkest of night, God leads his dear children along. Though sorrows befall us and Satan oppose, God leads his dear children along. Through grace we can conquer, defeat all our foes. God leads his dear children along, away from the mire, away from the clay. God leads his dear children along, away up in glory, eternity's day. God leads his dear children along. Some through the waters and some through the flood. Some through the fire, but all through the blood. Some through great sorrow, but God gives a song in the night season and all the day long. Dear Lord, help us to maintain a good and clean conscience. Help us not to betray our conscience. Help us to fill it always with your truth, your word, and not lies. Father, give us a desire to leave room for your revenge on our enemies, whoever they might be, and help us to do all we can to live at peace with all men. And Lord, help us to prepare for death by believing on your Son who died for us. He destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Thank you, Lord that what Paul wrote in those words is true forever. I pray for everyone listening, everyone in this room, that they have prepared for death by believing on Jesus Christ. Lord, if any are doubting or any are struggling today, help them to run to Jesus to find the peace that they so desperately need and will be given immediately the moment they confess and trust in him. Lord, we're here today, and we thank you for this worship hour. We pray for the song we close with. We ask you, Lord, to invigorate us, ignite a fire in us, revive You've been listening to audio from Fellowship Community Church in Centennial, Colorado. If you'd like more resources or want to support this ministry, please visit www.fcchurch.org.